Hello everyone, it's Anthony here. Just a quick note ahead of the episode. Regular listeners will already know this, but if you're new to the podcast, one of our co-hosts, Don, sadly passed away in January 2023, and we went on hiatus for quite some time after that. We recorded this episode before Don's passing, and it's taken us until September 2023 to release it. Don's fiancée, Anastasia, who has also since passed away, made it very clear to me that she felt strongly that any unreleased material featuring Don should be released, and that's what he would have wanted. Editing this episode was extremely tough, for obvious reasons, but we really wanted to comply with Anastasia's wishes and get this out into the world. So with that, sit back and enjoy our thoughts on the brain of Morbius. Watchers in the fourth dimension. You give sisters left. Kill Condor. Yet even a sponge has more life than I. Someone has succeeded in his vile experiments. Hello and welcome back to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension. I'm Anthony. I'm Don. I'm Julie. And I'm Riley. And oh, what a magnificent head. This episode, we're delving deep into the show's lore with the brain of Morbius. But first, we're going to take a quick look at the mail, and we're actually going to handle this a little bit differently this time, as our episode on Planet of Evil was our 100th regular podcast episode. On our socials, we asked our friends what they thought were some of the best moments of the show so far, and I'm going to handle that before I then hand over to Julie, who will take the rest of the mail. Getting us started, we have some general congratulatory remarks and feedback, starting with our occasional collaborator, Alan Seiler of the Doctor Who A to Z podcast, who says, Congratulations and well done on a truly excellent show. I'm looking forward to the next 100. Me too, Alan. Next up, Dave Jones says, Congratulations. Thank you for you guys' insight. Merry Christmas and happy holidays. Well, we're recording this on January 4th, so not too far after. By the time this goes out, that'll be long in the past, but thank you, Dave. Our good friend Adam Wright chimes in with, I'm just glad that you were my bi-weekly pleasure throughout the pandemic. Glad I met my panel buddy Julie and favourite Brit Anthony before life went crazy. Yay! (laughs) Nick Rutherford also chimed in with, yep, that's what sealed the deal for me too, helping me through the pandemic. Aw, you guys. Talking about some favourite moments, Julie seems to get quite a lot of love. (laughs) It does seem that she's the audience favourite, but keep in mind that all of this feedback came in before her controversial opinions on Pyramids of Mars. (laughs) (laughs) Calling me out there. Which are not necessarily shared by the remaining members of the podcast. Correct. Please send hate (laughs) mail to Julie at watches4d.net. Don't really, that's not a real email address, don't. Anyway, Astrozon Danglebert Zebulon says, Julie's summations to the stories are always a highlight. While Alex Kafetzoglu chimes in with a specific example, writing, Julie singing the intro to the Macro Terror is the first thing that comes to mind. <laughs> ben Flay highlights another Julie moment, saying that his favourite moment was the Benton love, <laughs> before going on to say, it's just fun listening to people who've never seen classic Who take it all in. It's going to be a while, but I'm looking forward to the five doctors. Thanks, Ben. We'll get there eventually. Guys, I'm starting to blush. Aww. Keith Burton, aka our frequent collaborator, Doctor Who on Target over on Instagram, commented, It's great how we all listen attentively, waiting to discover who Julie's next crush will be. (laughs) I thought she'd be all in on Harry, but on reflection, the long-standing fan affection for Harry probably has more to do with how we all felt about Ian Martyr than his actual character. It's also hilarious listening to Anthony trying to explain UK eccentricities. 
Yes, you rented VHS cassettes from gas stations. <laughs> Another Instagram friend, Paul Arthur, aka Doctor Who 60s, 70s, 80s, writes, Congratulations on the milestone, watchers. In terms of highlights, I still get a chuckle at your description of the IMC Jeeps from Colony in Space. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And then last but not least, Mark Dunstan says, this is a brilliant podcast. Love the reviews. They are priceless. Love Julie counting women in various stories. Julie's next crush will be Adam Colby, a scientist in Image of the Fendal. So that's season 15. Here's to another 100. Would Watchers 4D consider having a Blake 7 podcast to run in conjunction with the Doctor Who podcast? It could be called Watchers in the Seventh Dimension. Just a thought. <laughs> Personally, I would love to do a Blake 7 podcast, but I think Don would murder me. But if we do ever produce it as a sister's show, it would definitely be called Watchers in the Terran Federation, obviously shortened to WTF. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dear. And with all of that out of the way, I'm going to hand over to Julie for the rest of the mail. All right, I'll try to be quick. We do have some general feedback from Bill Lamont. Thanks for being the most fun in a strong field of Doctor Who themed podcasts. I love all of you, but I know Watchers in the Fourth Dimension is going to make me smile and laugh the most, and I really need that. Aww. Aww. Glad we can cheer you up. All right. We did have one from Terror of the Zygons that came in a little bit later from Jessica Grimwood. Hello, Watchers. I have been looking for an opportunity to write ever since I met Julie in front of the Tea and Absinthe booth at DragonCon this year. I distinctly remember this. We were both dressed as the 13th Doctor and my husband, dressed as the 14th Doctor, took a picture, which I would share, but we later lost the camera and haven't been able to recover it. Oh, no. So I may have to hunt you down at DragonCon next year and try again. Please do. We should all be there. Moments of clarification, Julie. I believe it was the 4th Doctor, not the 14th. I said 14th? Yeah. Yes. Yes, it oh. Okay, Sorry. Bye. We are a bit ahead of you, as we are partway through Colin Baker's tenure, but Tom is my favorite baker, and I am enjoying getting to revisit him. A particular favorite is Terror of the Zygons, especially as it gives Sarah and Harriet a bit more to do than usual. And apologies for accidentally saying 14th. I'm going crazy. We all are. <laughs> all right, now we have a bunch of Planet of Evil feedback. From our friend, Arl Gray. I'm so, so sorry you had to watch this one. We are too. <laughs> A wise person once said that the worst thing Doctor Who can do is be boring, and this story does it. It's a bog-standard concept with nothing in particular standing out. My partner, also a Who fan, doesn't even remember it, which points to how non-essential it is. <laughs> Maybe it will become our new smugglers. <laughs> our friend Adam writes, I must agree. This is a skippable story. I do love the jungle setting, but I agree the overall plot feels recycled. Julie seeks stories with women, but I love pointing out episodes with some melanin. In the first two episodes, we have Ponty played by Louis Mahoney, who later plays Old Billy in Blink. Did not make that connection at the time. Then from Kieran James Evans, it's an odd story that's good in parts, but less in others. I sort of don't mind it, but yeah, not a go-to story. 5.5 .5 out of 10, Prentice Hancock's being Prentice Hancock's. A <laughs> friend Mark Dunson, thanks for the episode. This is a good story let down by a few things. Prentice Hancock playing the same character as in Planet of the Daleks. The Captain Pugwash monster at the end of part one, very predictable, but otherwise good. The jungle was excellent. No Tarzan, though. Five salad bars out of ten. <laughs> 
I feel like salad bar is going to be the big thing. And then our good friend Beardo Beatnik. The sets and costumes all look like leftover Pertwee era trash. (laughs) (laughs) Wow. Just decimated. The acting and lighting are terrible. Four and a half out of ten giant shoulder pads. (laughs) I think leftover Pertwee era trash would have made a great (laughs) title for one of our episodes. (laughs) And I do want to clarify, before anyone accuses us of blasphemy, like I actually did get accused of for this story on social media, this is someone writing into us. This is not us saying that. (laughs) Yes. All right. And then we have a friend, Ben Flay. Sets like the jungle and the console room look great. That's all I've got. It's a bit of a mess. (laughs) Then we have Northerly Marie says, Philip, we're not playing golf. Points at women count. This is a problem. (laughs) I love it. I'm not the only one. (laughs) Then from Keith Burton. I'm glad you all picked up on the fact that there is a great story concept in here somewhere let down by production issues. Plus some plot issues. (laughs) Two years after broadcast, Terrence Dix uses the novelization to fill in some of the baffling backstory. Suddenly you understand why Sorensen is drinking his Pepsi Max and how Salomar (laughs) rose to the position of power. (laughs) Dix also leans heavily into the horror element. The book is a scary treat in the way I first experienced the story long before I saw the ho-hum episodes. Good to know. Maybe one day I'll read some of these books. There's just so much content out there. Then our good friend Jam Casey. Wow, not gonna lie. This one hurts a bit. I mean, no one liked this one at all, really, did they? No. A lot of the holes you all pointed out are definitely there but I can only rate this based on how much I enjoy it. And I've always enjoyed watching it. For me, it's a seven out of 10. But how much of my feeling about it is based on a kind of remembrance of early viewings when I was fairly new to and very excited by science fiction, space settings, and weird planets? Hard to say, but all I know is that Planet of Evil always takes me right back there. Love the atmosphere of it, the weirdness. It's definitely more than a bit creepy. And there are so many red shirt deaths. (laughs) It just feels like good old space horror, a thing I really like and was introduced to really by Doctor Who and stories like this one. That's fair. Promise, guys, there's only two more from our friend Peter Falkus. This is a brilliant story. It's from 1975. Just take that into account. It's years ahead of its time. Okay, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) We'll agree to disagree. And last but not least, Paul Arthur. Another highly enjoyable podcast, even if you didn't like Planet of Evil. It's not the best Hinchcliffe story, but I've always had a soft spot for it myself. That jungle set is chef's kiss. And that is the mail. Thank you, Julie. And as a reminder, we really do love hearing all of your feedback, comments, thoughts, and questions. And as you've just heard, we really do spend way too much time trying to read out as many of them as possible. You can reach us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at at Watches4D or via email at Watches4D at gmail.com. And we would dearly love to hear from you, so please do leave us a message. Diving behind the scenes on the brain of Morbius, this one has its origin in producer Philip Hinchcliffe's interest in further exploring the subject of robotics, and he wanted to delve into the relationship between machine and man, and that came from his very keen interest in the works of noted science fiction author Isaac Asimov. Separately, Hinchcliffe and script editor Robert Holmes had been taking the show in a more and more gothic horror direction. Former script editor Terence Dix had stayed in close contact with the Doctor Who production office, and with the gothic theme in mind, he was developing a vampire story that was tentatively entitled The Haunting. That particular project fell through in early 1975, 
but Dix and Holmes started discussing ways to bring Hinchcliffe's robotics idea to life. Still thinking in terms of gothic horror, our scripting duo looked to Mary Shelley's 1818 classic novel Frankenstein or the Modern Prometheus and its many film adaptations for inspiration. For anyone who has somehow managed to avoid any knowledge of Frankenstein, the basic premise was that of a scientist who brought to life a man who'd been assembled from bits and pieces of different corpses. You see how that influences the brain of Morbius. The discussions between Dix and Holmes led to the development of the first draft of what would become the brain of Morbius. Dix's first storyline revolved around a space criminal who had become severely injured after crash landing on a planet. His robot servant rescued his brain and sought to restore Morbius to life, assembling a body by scavenging parts of various alien corpses despite their vastly different physiognomies. Dix was commissioned to turn his storyline into scripts in June 1975 and completed his work before leaving on vacation in early August. He lifted several elements from his own stage play, Doctor Who and the Seven Keys to Doomsday, including the setting of the planet Khan and the concept of the Doctor fighting a duel, while the claw-like arm of Morbius was inspired by Dix's own creation, the Chlorantulas. Meanwhile, inspiration for the Sisterhood of Khan came from the H. Ryder Haggard 1887 novel, She. A History of Adventure. A key requirement of the scripts was to keep the budget low. The production team expected The Brain of Morbius to be the penultimate adventure of the season and that the series finale would be expensive. Dix was asked to ensure that the serial would be entirely studio bound and that it would require no sort of special filming whatsoever and that includes model work. One change that Holmes and Hinchcliffe made after reviewing the scripts was to remove Dix's robot which they realised would be far too expensive. They were also concerned that Dix had veered far too far away from the desired horror flavour. When Dix returned from vacation, he decided he didn't want to deal with it, and so gave Holmes carte blanche to restructure the scripts. Holmes replaced the robot with a scientist named Solon, and also added a homage to the deformed servant of Frankenstein movies in the shape of Kondo. Holmes retained the mental duel between the Doctor and Morbius, but controversially included faces intended to be incarnations of the Doctor that preceded the first televised Doctor, and thus contradicting the show's established law. Mm-hmm. <sighs> this scene would be equally ignored and explained in various spin-off media, and would finally be explored deeper on television in 2020's The Timeless Children. <clears throat> we'll get back to that on the podcast in about... <laughs> A I decade. Know, Ten years' time, yeah. For the mental duel, Hinchcliffe had wanted to use photographs of famous actors for the Doctor's earlier incarnations. Unable to find suitable candidates, crew members for both this serial and the next one, The Seeds of Doom, were dressed in period clothing and photographed. These included Hinchcliffe, Holmes, directors Christopher Barry and Douglas Camfield, writer Robert Banks Stewart, production unit manager George Galaccio, and production assistants Chris Baker and Graham Harper. Yeah, let's just move on. Yeah. <laughs> Upon receiving Holmes's version of the scripts, Dix was unhappy with the amount of revision that Holmes had performed. While he understood why the changes were made, he felt that the removal of the robot fundamentally changed the character of his serial and undermined the central themes that he had put in place. Dix met with Holmes and Hinchcliffe to discuss the situation, and it was suggested that the serial might be credited to either Holmes or to the Stephen Harris pseudonym applied to Pyramids of Mars. Ultimately, Dix asked Holmes to credit the serial to some bland pseudonym, and Holmes duly used the name Robin Bland, much to Dix's amusement. <laughs> Assigned as director, we have the return of Christopher Barry, an absolute gladiator of the show. This was his ninth directorial outing, having been directing since season two. 
And when it came to casting, he was inspired by the horror trappings of the serial and considered both Vincent Price and Peter Cushing for the role of Solon. But that cost too much money, right? (laughs) Probably. I mean, so they just gave the role to Mr. Welsh Teeth himself, Philip Maddock. (laughs) Joining Christopher Barry behind the scenes, our key people are all returning faces. Janet Radenkovich continues her run on the show as production unit manager. Dudley Simpson makes his 40th contribution to the show as composer. L. Roland Warren makes his third of four contributions to the show as costumer, having previously worked on Death to the Daleks and Planet of the Spiders in season 11. And last but not least, the absolutely legendary Barry Newbury returns to the show for the 11th time as designer, having worked on nine stories in the black and white era and the last time that we saw him was way back in season 7 when he worked on Doctor Who and the Silurians. After a two-week break in the season over Christmas and New Year, The Brain of Morbius was broadcast between the 3rd and 24th of January 1976. Parts 1 and 4 were both delayed from their usual time slot by 10 minutes, once again due to Grandstand's coverage of the (laughs) FA Cup draw. (sighs) As a final behind-the-scenes note, This serial once again drew the ire of Mary Whitehouse, president of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, who once again condemned the show for being too horrific. She wrote to the BBC chairman, Sir Michael Swan, and demanded that the show be rescheduled to much later at night. With this latest intervention, the British press were beginning to take notice of her shenanigans. But more to come on that with future serials. Each time you bring her up, I think of Ned Flanders' wife. (laughs) Somebody think of the children! You're not far off. And spoilers, she eventually gets Hinchcliffe fired. So, uh, Oh. Yeah. That wraps up our behind-the-scenes segment, and so we move on to the short summary, which is with Riley this episode. Over to you, Riley. Thank you. This time, the short summary will be done in the style of Over at the Frankenstein Place from the Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I'm sure our listeners don't want to hear me sing, so I've asked Julie to assist me. So, Julie, whenever you care to, take it away. In the wrecks and darkness, of the planet con burning far there's a sacred place what conto kills and obeys there's a flame over near Solon's place there's a flame burning at the sisters' fireplace. There's a flame, flame for the doctor and our blind Sarah Jane. Okay, now Condor's part. Darkness down must go on Solon, hope and dreaming. Slow, Morbius, slow, make hand and arm come streaming into life, into life. And that's a short summary. That was amazing. Thank you, guys. All right. (laughs) Let's talk about this one. That was amazing, guys. You're welcome. Love to do it. <laughs> Let's start by talking about the reuse of the muck costume from the mutants. That was a throwback. Well, it looked good in the shot, and they've got it stored somewhere. Why not? Yeah, just not exactly what you expect. It was one of those things where I wasn't entirely sure if that was a reuse, and I was like, yep, nope, that is. Yeah, when the doctor shows up and calls it a mutt, you mm-hmm. know it's a reuse. Ah, uh, 
I would do it. Not many stories begin with a decapitation, but the ones that do are usually pretty good. <laughs> Not enough stories begin with a decapitation. We will be starting the next episode of Watchers with a decapitation. <laughs> Probably mine when the other three rise up against their tyrant. We need to get out of this basement somehow. Damn right. <laughs> I love this opening. I think it's amazing. And not only the decapitation, obviously that's fun, but Salon's the whole thing when he's like stroking the insect's head. Oh my God, that was amazing. <laughs> I love him so much. Oh yeah. <laughs> he's just the right level of bonkers to really, really work. Charmingly bonkers. Yes. Yeah, that's a good description, Don. I'll go with that. And his wonderful gothic slash sci-fi lair is just really great. It's big and spacious and wonderful. And of course, my favorite, condo. Condo. <laughs> I'd kind of guessed from your intro that he might be your favorite, Riley. First time I saw him, if someone asked me, what do you think of a condo? Do you like him? My answer is, yarp. <laughs> <laughs> I feel bad for him. His name's yeah. not Condo. His name's Dave. But his last <laughs> name was Minium, and kids can be so cruel. Just because he was kind of chunky. <laughs> oh, boy. One thing I do want to touch on is this is the cheap one. There's no location filming. The sets look cheap, but they're charming. It's like television theater. Mm -hmm. They look cheap, but they're well made. You can't see visible joints in the wall like you could in Planet of Evil. I don't think it looks that cheap. No, it's fine. I think it's because what they did also is that there's the advantage that everything is really large and spacious. Everything is kept at a distance, which is good because when you think of gothic horror, you think of those giant ballrooms, those large foyers with those grand staircases. And just that amount of space just kind of makes you feel like anything can come out at you. And it may be cheap, but it's bold, it's large, and it's got a good gothic look to it. I was sold. And they sprung for a fog machine. <laughs> so I was right there. Like, okay, let's do it. Oh, right. Like immediately, once you see the lightning going on on the planet all the time at the beginning, yes. you're like, OK, I know exactly what we're doing here. Are we saying that they laid it out better than they did in Pyramids of Mars with the atmosphere? Oh, that's a good point. If you're going to go gothic horror, I would say yes. Yeah, because it's not all brightly lit and shot during the day. Yeah. <laughs> I also really like going, not talking about the actual design of stuff. I like the fact that at the beginning of the serial, the doctor just says no. <laughs> He's just this petulant child like, nope, I'm not doing anything. I'm not going anywhere. And then Sarah just makes fun of him for it. And it's awesome. It's a little bit of a break from what the Time Lords normally do as well. Because the last time we've seen them give a mission to the doctor, we normally have someone appear and tell them, we're sending you on a mission. Instead, it's a, we're just going to land you here and good luck. <laughs> Figure it out. It was very interesting, too, because the way that they laid it out, it could have been interpreted a little differently. It could have been interpreted that the Time Lords intervened. But since there were so many spaceships that were brought in there, there's a potential that the external influence could have not been the Time Lords. It was nothing to do with them. Yeah, true. Like, <laughs> is just mad at them and it's not even them. <laughs> there's a small part of me that really wish that had been the case because that would have been hilarious. <laughs> but that's not what happened. That's okay. No, we all know they're assholes. <laughs> hey, because they're assholes. Okay, sorry. <laughs> what is up with the doctor's umbrella? It seems oh. comedically 
it didn't extend. It was Inefficient. broken. Yeah. It's just, yeah. why even bother putting it up? Yep. That's okay. Can we start talking about the Sisterhood of Karn? Sure yes. thing. Sure. Because I love the Sisterhood of Karn. I love them. I love their design. I love their weird chanting and hand motions that they have. I was hoping you were going to say hand motions because they do some really interesting hand inflections. <laughs> yes, a sisterhood that firmly believes in jazz hands. Yes. <laughs> it's interesting. This is where I'm also going to get my nerd on because they've just pilfered so much from various esoteric traditions. It's amazing. Like specifically calling out the elixir of life. Oh, hey, alchemy. Mm hmm. Mm -hmm. The whole yep. crossed hands over the chest thing, that's used in quite a few esoteric traditions and it's normally known as the sign of the good shepherd. So I was just watching this going, oh, I've seen that before and I've seen that. And <laughs> oh, okay, so someone on set knows what they're doing with these guys. Cool, cool. Mm -hmm. I was nerding out. I love them. I know we only got to hear from two of them for the most part, but just the fact that we have this whole sect of women who they know what's going on for the most part and they have their shit together and they're just really fun and I enjoyed them this whole time. It's a wonderful addition to what at its base is, as Anthony mentioned earlier, a Frankenstein story. Yeah, mm -hmm. you throw in a coven of witches. Yeah, I mean, you do something, you add something to it and it's a good addition. And also they do make a fantastic modern dance company. Yes. <laughs> The other thing that I liked is that they actually gave them some power, mm -hmm. the teleportation yeah. power. It's not just a whole bunch of women just standing around yelling and singing and just living a long life. They actually have some sort of power, which is really fun. And they got that yep. green lantern ring, you know. <laughs> the teleportation effect was really well done. It didn't look like bad CSO. It was done quite well, in my opinion. We're moving past CSO at this point, darling. Maybe. <laughs> Isn't it somewhere, somewhere along the line, we start hearing about the cult of Morbius? Yes. And who yeah. is Morbius? He's just another asshole Time Lord. Oh, yep. <laughs> surprise, surprise. Ugh. He's like Omega, but with a much smaller head. <laughs> <laughs> and it doesn't take long for the story to make it very clear that Solon is pretty much a part of it. And is batshit crazy? And is batshit yes. crazy, yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Obviously, it would be nice to have a little bit of suspense on that, but, you know, when you're making obvious calls about his intentions, such as when the doctor arrives and he says, first comment, oh, what a magnificent head you have. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a little suspicious. <laughs> yeah, that's a bit straightforward. I do like it that he turns on the charm when yes. they're at the door. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like, oh, that's good. You're not going to immediately prattle on and be evil. You're having some fun with this. <laughs> and that's it. He's funny. Solon is funny oh. in yes. a really good way. It's a weird depiction because it's almost a self-referential campiness to it in the performance. Plus one to the camp camp. <laughs> yeah, because it's not like he just is going straight out. It's more of a, like, he knows that he's being ridiculous. Almost the character knows he's being ridiculous, especially later on in episode four. Or I believe episode three, where he even calls himself out about saying, I couldn't help it, the pun was irresistible. I mean, that was amazing. <laughs> it's very, very theatrical. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Like, British TV started out as televised theatre, effectively. And they're taking that and dialing it up to 11. And everyone, as you say, Riley, is almost aware of that. And it really gains this wittiness from it. I really, really enjoy it. All right, so the Doctor and Sarah Jane are eating something Seaweed? with them. 
something like that. But then you see Sarah Jane very obviously pouring the wine out. And I just found it very interesting that Sarah Jane was the smart one, whereas the doctor was the one who was actually drinking the wine. Well, we know from the third doctor, the doctor does love his wine. <laughs> uh, yep, that is true. And Sarah Jane also was acting as if she had passed out. So this serial, I love Sarah Jane because she does become the damsel somewhat, but she overcomes it herself like every time. Oh, she becomes blind. Well, guess what? She still got shit done while she mm -hmm. was blind later. I just really loved how they gave Sarah Jane a lot to do in this story. I think that's a really good point because at previous times where we had seen Sarah Jane being put through the ringer, it's more like a situation where the doctor just tells her, I'll come and buck up. But here, like, <laughs> yeah. that happens once. Mm -hmm. But other than that, she's pretty much just gets past it and gets things done. To be fair, she gets put in the ringer a lot more than she has in the past in this one. Mm -hmm. She really does. And yet she's the one who bucks up. And as you said, she does it herself. And I love that. And on top of that, I've been mentioning this the last two serials, but man, Sladen and Baker are just cooking together. <laughs> the chemistry is off the charts in this one. Yeah, it really is. And uh, it kind of makes me sad when I realize there's only a limited time of them together because I would have loved more. Well, on that sad note, did anyone else notice when <laughs> the Sisterhood of Karn transports the TARDIS, all of them approach and then there's a point where one of them <laughs> starts doing the hands thing to it, <laughs> but she's yes. the first one to do it. And then she looks around like all insecure, like, wait, are we not doing the hands thing? Are we doing it? And then everyone else joins in. <laughs> it's a wonderful little, little bit to it. I really enjoyed that. <laughs> Brilliant. It's like, when do we not use the hands? I yeah, exactly. We we're, do we're, the hands. we're doing the hand things, right? <laughs> it's Wednesday. We always do the hand things on Wednesday. <laughs> oh, no. For reference to Mean Girls, what, yeah. what are we doing? What are we doing? <laughs> Who are we? <laughs> All right. So are we close to the end of part one? Yeah. Oh, we've been close to the end. <laughs> yeah. Sarah's still conscious when the doctor's not. She's wandering around and she thinks she's found the doctor. And nope, it's a headless monster. Easy mistake to make. <laughs> yeah. And that's that cliffhanger. I, I saw that thing and it was just they went there. Yeah, it was awesome. <laughs> they went there. Awesome cliffhanger, just straight up horror. It's like they hired a nine-year-old. <laughs> hey, hey, design us a monster. Yes. <laughs> Can they have a claw arm and some guy's arm and this? That's not just any guy's arm. We could argue we call that Chekhov's arm for this story. <laughs> yes, that is Chekhov's arm. <laughs> Don, you'll be pleased to know Russell T. Davies actually did do that and hired a nine-year-old effectively oh, yes. for Love and Monsters. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I know. <laughs> and moving on. Yes. All right. At this point, I'm wondering, how hard is it to find a head? Like, really, how hard is it for them to find a head? I guess they were trapped on the planet. They couldn't just go off planet to get one. Good head's hard to find, man. I guess. Yeah, it's that perfectionism. He wants the perfect head. He wasn't quite as picky about the rest of it, but the head's got to be perfect. <laughs> exactly. And also, if you notice that the head must be male. Yes. Must be male. Well, you wouldn't want it to look weird, would you? <laughs> <laughs> Heaven forbid that Morbius should have to walk around with a woman's head. <sighs> Did you hear the little comment about the woman's brain is too small for Morbius's intellect? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. <sighs> mm-hmm. Yep. Hence why I was like, and it had to be a man. Because uh, Solon and probably Morbius, both of them are probably just, you know, they hate women. Or Solon just hates everybody. I was not sure exactly where I was going with that, but I think he does. 
Not sure about Solon. Definitely think Morbius hates everyone. Oh, well, yeah. yes. Oh, it's kind of like at this point where we keep going back and forth with like the sisterhood and all this others. I really enjoyed the person who played, was it Marin? Yeah. I loved her. She was amazing. <laughs> Honestly, I thought both her and Ohika were excellent. Yeah, she got a little bit more to play with. So that's why I noticed Marin a little bit more. That was Cynthia Grenville as Marin and Jilly Brown as Ohika. But yeah, I really enjoyed both of them. We should just discuss the Sisterhood and their animosity towards the Time Lords, which, based on our previous experience of other Time Lords on the show so far, is understandable. <laughs> yes. Yeah, and it's interesting because we're kind of getting some little tidbits of Time Lords effectively before they were Time Lords. So they used to need the Elixir of Life to help them regenerate. Now they can do it on their own, so they don't need the Sisterhood to help them anymore. But because of this, the Sisterhood don't trust them anymore. And I feel like we're getting a bit more about the Time Lords explicitly being kind of assholes than the unspoken assholery that we used to get. <laughs> makes me very happy that this is the direction they wanted to go in it's not just oh the doctor's a time lord and he's kind of off on his own it's like he's off on his own partially because the time lords are dicks always have been always will be <laughs> but they've decided that because they dislike time lords so much that they're going to burn the doctor alive which is terrifying all in a day's work <laughs> and then i love the fact that he's like sitting there trying to plead for his life saying you need scientific advice it <laughs> <laughs> was so good I love that imagine if it had to do that with unit in Spearhead from Space <laughs> I'm trying to picture the brigadier trying to burn the doctors <laughs> <laughs> maybe if he'd landed in the Inferno universe yeah. <laughs> except the brigadier would just use explosives <laughs> yes tying C4 all around him <laughs> <laughs> execution by dynamite <laughs> Here, hold this one in your teeth. It'll be fine. <laughs> so Sarah is the one who gets him out. So she disguises herself as a sister. So way to go, Sarah. That is some impressive initiative. Cuts his knots. And then when Marin closes her eyes, the doctor just slips away. <laughs> but we skipped over what I think is one of the best scenes in the entire serial is Solon uh -huh. and Kondo going in there and Solon trying to bargain. <laughs> with the sisterhood and the two best parts are this is also where he just starts bargaining like well just give me the head like he just yeah. come on just just, head. just give just me the head just, It'll be fine. just leave it to the side and then when he offers condo oh. to them in, in place and that was really great because when we get back and condo on the long walk back pieces it all together where Solon has what I like to call his come on, Kondo, it's just a prank, bro, moment. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that was brilliant. Oh, I loved that scene. Not I was trying to trick them. I was like, no, it's just a prank. <laughs> How is that a prank? Haha, <laughs> <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> got you burned at the stake. <laughs> it's like Franti just relentlessly insults you and just goes, I'm just joking. <laughs> No, you're not. You're a dick. And it's while you watch Kano piece it together, then also him bargain for his arm oh. poorly. It's at that moment I definitely realized that if Kondo, and you know where I'm going with this, if he can't get his own set of big finish adventures, then what the hell are they even doing it all for? <laughs> Honestly. Big oh. finish, are you listening? Absolutely. 
What I particularly like is when he comes in and is trying to bargain with the sisterhood, you almost think at first, maybe the doctor's thinking, you know what? He's not such a bad guy. He's coming to my rescue. And then he goes, just give me his head. Oh, wait, no, definitely not a good guy. That should have been the most obvious. Like, why in the world would you need this guy's head? Weirdo. (laughs) Even the sisterhood should have been questioning that. Oh, absolutely. But again, I, I mentioned this earlier. Sarah Jane's blind now. Yep. Yes. And that yeah. is absolutely the worst thing that I think happened to a companion up to this point in the show, right? I mean, Katarina died. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. <Getting> an airlock. <laughs> Sorry, the Katarina who was only there for like Oh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Okay, other than the death of Katarina. And <laughs> <laughs> now I'm just thinking about like the, the Monty Python. Yeah, the life of Brian. <laughs> what, did, uh. what did the Romans ever do for us? <laughs> well, aside from the death of this one, <laughs> I'm terrible. It is very, very bad. And it's an interesting scene because it reminded me of a reference I mentioned earlier, the buck up scene between her and the doctor, the Wally and self pity. It's so much more different than how it was in Ark in Space. And it was interesting because you could see Sarah Jane kind of go through the motions of where she's very upset, she's distraught, and then she starts making jokes about it, like Mm -hmm. selling flowers on the street corner. And then once again, dropping back down into depression and then pulling herself back up. It was quite a roller coaster, but it was a really interesting performance. Yeah. Yeah. Quite good. And what I loved because they go to Solon to try to see if there's a way to heal Sarah Jane. I love that little interaction where the doctor looks over at him and he like Mm -hmm. just shakes his head. A part of me is really sad for the fact that it was a lie. But man, if that had been like the truth. Oh, that was so well done. But I I like the fact that they sold it Mm -hmm. like it could have gone either way. Like he could have been lying, could have been telling the truth. He doesn't necessarily seem obvious at all times. I like that. I completely agree with you, Don. He's just brilliant. So, so good. All right. And so Sarah Jane is left to her own devices and finds her way down to Morbius, which is a brain in a jar. An angry pickle jar. (laughs) Oh, God. I love brains in jars. It's one of my favorite cheesy sci-fi tropes. I love it. The concept of it terrifies me (laughs) as far as being one. But, oh, (laughs) So good. And it's something Futurama will really enjoy doing (laughs) later, you know, in like 20 years time, whatever it is from this. Yeah, there's a lot of elements of this serial in particular that call back not just to Frankenstein, but a lot of early or mid 50s American horror films. Like there was the one where MST3K famously did where it was where they call the character Jane in a pan, which is a decapitated head. That oh, talk. Jane in the pan. Yeah, Jane in the pan. The brain that wouldn't die. Exactly. And then there's also uh, another MST3K called Robot Monster, which was, I think, even earlier in the 50s, where it was just a guy in a gorilla suit wearing a space astronaut helmet. And that's kind of what Morbius ends up looking like yeah. a little bit towards the end. Let's also not forget Morbius is literally a name from Forbidden Planet. As well. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll take the effect from this one. We'll take the name for this one. <laughs> I mean, it's Morbius himself. It's fine. And we'll wrap it all up in some hammer style gothic horror. Yep. Yes. Fine by me. So part three. Part three. I do have a question though. It's never really explained, not that it really needs to be, as to why Morbius wants to destroy the sisterhood. Well, they were involved in his execution, right? Yeah, they like joined against him with the other Time Lords. But I thought that he had been going after them before that, or am I just 
No, I think you're right about that because he was also, his motivations are not very clear other than he just wants to kill a lot of things and a lot of planets. Okay. I suspect that where it was going was he was trying to help the Time Lords in his eyes realize their own power. And if at the time Mm. they were reliant on the Sisterhood for the Elixir, that he was trying to show them, well, you can just kill the Sisterhood and just take the Elixir for yourselves. That's my reading. Okay. That makes sense. I like that one. But what I love even more than that is because Solon and Morbius are having that conversation and Sarah Jane is brilliant because she listens in on the conversation and then she locks him in the room. (laughs) Yes. Why does the door lock that way? It's so dumb. (laughs) (laughs) Gotta make sure your Morbiuses don't go running out of there. But yeah. right. it does bring up what I think was the most tense conflict of the entire series. Does Kondo know how to open a locked door? <laughs> <laughs> One-handed. Yes. Apparently. One-handed. Yes. yes. Oh, Kondo. I have to give props to Sarah because one of my phobias is becoming blind because my eyesight is so bad. And oh, that would just be horrifying to just all of a sudden lose it. No bueno. Yeah. Yeah. Especially where we have a scene where you're strapped up to a operating table and you can't see, you have no idea what they're preparing, what tools they're about to use. And that's absolutely horrifying. And as you say, Julie, it's kind of the worst, aside from Katarina, it's one of the worst things in recent memory that's happened to a companion. We still have the sisterhood who's still going after the doctor for a little bit until I think they get to a truce at some point in part three. But man, they just really have it out for him. Yeah. They're not even that much nicer after he fixes their sacred flame. <laughs> no, you would expect maybe some level of gratitude for that. Yeah. They're even about to burn him again because they think he's irretrievably broken it before it <laughs> sputters back into life. Also, I'm a, a little bit disappointed on how that resolved itself. Like they wouldn't have thought about maybe we should try to clean it once. Yeah. Clean the shoot. Or I think at some point he mentioned that there's probably some sort of tectonic shift. So like it would have been nice to have been like, well, if you use this other cavern, this is where all the the gas is coming from now. So put it over here. I'm sure if they had a bigger budget, it would have involved some sort of trip into the caves. (laughs) Yeah. Instead, let's just throw a firecracker down it and move on. (laughs) (laughs) It's just bung some explosives. I mean, it works. So why not? It's fine. Oh, man. There was that little scene, though, between all of them where the doctor talks about how death is the price we pay for progress. And yeah, that little sequence was just a lot of fun because I think it gave, again, the sister something to think about, which obviously comes back into part four. It's also a commentary on society. Mm -hmm. Some people want to live forever. It gives the audience something to think about as well, which I really appreciate and enjoy. I like when Doctor Who makes me think. Yeah, I believe... We get to the point now where there's a rush to get Morbius in a body because they know that the doctor has been gone too long and that he's probably teamed up with the sisterhood. So it's time to drain the pickle juice out of the jar. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yep. And let's not forget Kondo's crush on Sarah Jane. Oh, he has to go and pick her up. So that's good. That's always an important part. That is also a callback to like Rondo Hatton characters from 50s American horror films going around. I believe it was Rondo Hatton. Was that? No. All right. Well, strike that. And I... just about any 50 sci-fi movie, you've got a creature carrying the damsel in distress. Or the big goon character, at Tor Johnson. Yeah. Tor Johnson is the name. <laughs> just go back to King Kong. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which leads us to... We did that in Robot. Move on. <laughs> <laughs> 
Also by Terence Dix. Yes. Which leads us to our big fight between Solon and Kondo, where it is horrible because Kondo gets shot twice right in the midsection. But we do learn that Solon is a believer of the three second rule. (laughs) Yes. And also that if he just knew how to treat his employees properly, (laughs) this wouldn't have happened. I don't know of any HR manual that specifically says, do not steal employees' limbs. (laughs) It's kind of an unwritten rule, most companies. I'm fairly certain if I did steal an employee's limb, I'd probably get fired, but... I think you'd get arrested. It's just going to come back on you at the worst possible time. Like, hey, that's mine. Julie, I I think the arrest would depend on whether the limb was still attached or not at the time of the theft. Somebody's lunch from the break room is one thing, but their arm, come on, man. (laughs) There are limits. Oh, man. So he quote unquote kills Kondo. He shoots Kondo. And he's like, oh, hey, well, now, Sarah Jane, you have to do things for me. It's like he forgets (laughs) that she's blind. And he literally does, because when they're finished operating, he's like, don't you see? And she can't see a damn thing. It's so funny. The the best one is, I I think it might be like at the beginning of part four, where there's someone knocks at the door. And for a moment, he tells her to answer it. And he's like, oh, (laughs) you're blind and you don't actually work here. So I guess I'll Just can't get the staff. I think that's at the very end of part three, because he leaves and that's when Morbius starts waking up. But Morbius is just monster Morbius at this point. It is like the actual monster part of Frankenstein's monster. And that's what's interesting about this one, where in the actual story of Frankenstein, you feel for the monster. And this one, you don't. (laughs) No, no. No, you feel for Kondo. He's, I think, the main sympathetic character who's not a regular. Otherwise, I'm like, good God, can someone just get rid of Morbius? Can someone get rid of Solon? Yeah. Like, these two people are just nutters, and they need to just be stopped. Yeah. That's it. But I love the final Morbius form. Just, I love it. I don't know what I like about it. I think it's because of, like, the weird, like, bug eyes. Things. Oh, the bug I love eyes that. I love it. <laughs> it's so great. And to top it all off, it was just delectable. His voice, especially when he was being irritated and harassed. Like the, he sounded like Skeletor. It was awesome. <laughs> <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, that combined with the voice, I love Morbius so much. <laughs> Yeah, he wouldn't have been effective if Solon had actually found him a human head with vocal cords that he could speak through. So part four? Yeah, part four. Yes. Sarah Jane can see again, magically. And I love when she gets to the doctor and Sarah Jane says, you're too late. The doctor grabs his head and he's like, I can't (laughs) be. (laughs) (laughs) And in addition to that, we get the start of... Another trope of Frankenstein movies. Morbius sets his hand on fire. The fire is coming for him. <laughs> and we get the arguably our villagers with torches and pitchforks. Yes. Yeah. Scene. Eventually. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit later. Yeah. But yes, we have that perfect trope. We also get the Doctor and Solon team up as they go to get the crazed monster Morbius. Well, before even that, when Solon first comes across Morbius, I thought he almost died from a hug of death. <laughs> then found out that he didn't die from it. And this is where Kondo yeah. actually dies. Yeah. Our big heavyweight bout 
I could have watched them fight a full 12 rounds. <laughs> In this whole confrontation piece as well, Sarah gets pushed down the stairs. Mm-hmm. She hasn't been through the ringer enough. That's rough <laughs> too. People die from that shit and she somehow survives, but ugh, poor Sarah. If I were her, I would at the end go, okay, Doctor, you're taking me home. I definitely had that note in here. I was like, you know what? This would be the time where I'd be like, I'm out. Screw this. Yeah, I'm done. And Morbius on his rampage even kills a sister. There were only nine of them, for God's sake. He kills one. (laughs) Yes. It also didn't really look like she tried to run all that much, but that's neither here nor there. Poor Sister Mary Redshirt. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, yes. I love the team up of the Doctor and Solon, and they actually tranquilize Morbius. And Solon still wants to complete the experiment. For God's sake, Solon. I thought they were both going to drag Morbius back. No, the Doctor just full on body carries him. Talk about some strength. Right? Wow. Oh, man. He's been doing some push-ups on the TARDIS. One thing I really love here is when Solon locks them in the basement, we don't just have the casual sonic screwdriver. We'll fix it. It's in the TARDIS. They have to think of another way. Thank you, production team. <laughs> and how do we fix it? We murder Solon by chemicals. <laughs> Straight up. Cyanide gas, right? Yeah. Right. <laughs> you do what you gotta do, man. I mean, <laughs> just, well, okay. Is that the last we actually see of Solon when he collapses from yeah. that? Yeah. Because he's yeah. died. Yeah. He died. He, yeah, he's dead. He was killed by cyanide gas. We were kind of hoping that he'd have like a big you know, death scene monologue, wouldn't you? But I fully expected <laughs> Kondo to be the one that would end him. Mm-hmm. That would have been very poetic. I think Kondo should have ripped off his arm <laughs> from Morbius <laughs> and then beat him to death with it. <laughs> that would have been fantastic. It's one of two things. They had two decisions to make. It was either one, Kondo saves Sarah Jane, or he destroys Solon. I don't know that they would have been able to do both, necessarily. That's true. That's true. Anyway, we need to talk about Morbius and the Doctor. You mean when they start calling him Chop Suey? (laughs) Yes, Chop Suey, the Galactic Emperor. Also, Morbius is just like swaying while ranting. It's very, very campy. So Very good. campy. I think this deserves more points on the camp count, guys. Agreed. Agreed. Agree. I'm just going to bump this up to five for the story. <laughs> it just okay. feels right. Okay. Okay, the duel. Yes. Ugh. The controversial part. <sighs> <laughs> What's everyone's read on this? Do you see these as pre-Hartnell doctors or do you refuse to accept it? Uh, Here's my I, hot take. I, uh, I don't care! <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't matter! I had a feeling you would say that, Don. I think my hot take is that I would much rather have seen them have a bout against each other by playing Mrs. Pac-Man and something instead. (laughs) If that's what we're implying, you have to accept a universe where the Doctor was a 70s cop. Did you see that mustache (laughs) on that guy? I want the adventures of Robert Holmes as the Doctor just smoking Uh, his pipe and hating women. (laughs) As I'll sit there and be like, you know what? I'm going to say that the image has changed because... Oh, hey, look, that's actually what Morbius looked like when he was alive. You have that. You have the option of it could be like when the second doctor was being allowed to pick his future appearance. Potential doctors. Yeah, that's good. There's so many ways of explaining this away without Mm -hmm. doing that stupid, annoying, oh, there were other doctors. (laughs) Robert Holmes intended it to be so, and fucking Chibnall did too. 
Yeah, well, we couldn't say his name. <laughs> I will do a ton of Hail Marys after we finish recording. Okay. As long as it's not said three times, he won't appear at my doorstep. <laughs> <laughs> that comes to an end and Morbius skulks off and that's where we get the sisterhood with their flaming torches. Very, very Frankenstein. And he appears to fall to his death. I really like the music at that point. I think the theme had already been set up in the story, but just the way that the music was happening while the sisterhood was driving him off a cliff. Oh, so good. We haven't really mentioned music that much, but it was good throughout this serial. Mm -hmm. It was. Very appropriate. Well, I guess it's one of those things where a good job of the music is it puts you in the mood and you don't even realize it's their playing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Dudders is getting a lot better about that. It's not as much in your face and it's more of just fitting the scene. So then it does become difficult to say good use of music because then it's like, well, the entire episode, because I didn't really notice it was there, but I didn't think it was bad. <laughs> So Morbius is dead. And we finally get the elixir coming full circle. They use it to make the Doctor recover. Marin joins with the flame. We get a very quick goodbye. The Doctor hands Ohika some flashbangs and we're done. The sacrifice I loved. I thought that was really nice. And that's why I really liked that actress and everything that she did with that character because she got to do that bit at the end. I thought it was interesting that they showed a young version of herself is what I'm assuming because... Reasons? Well, because like, it was weird because the doctor had mentioned that she must have been old when she started taking the elixir. And so my thought was that she must have been old because she looks old. That had been my assumption, but then it showed a younger version of her. So I'm not entirely sure where they were going with that bit of it. But I do know that that was something that was mentioned. In any case, I love her. And she's going on my nominations for Best Supporting Actors and Actresses. I'm actually putting down Philip Maddock oh, yes. as best supporting of course. actor as yes. well. I didn't mention it because I, it's just a given. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. And best moment, I am going to mention the brain going on the floor. <laughs> <laughs> Whoopsie. <laughs> All right. We have clearly thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed this one. Julie, how many women with speaking parts do we have? Two. Which is just as many in the rest of the season so far. So, win. And there were a ton of extras. Are you counting Sarah Jane? No. Okay, so this is just anyone else. Okay. Yes. Women right. with speaking parts who are not a companion. Yes. All right, let's go ahead and score this one. Don, as I mentioned last episode, you get to go first this time. Oh, this will be easy. I really love this. It sets a great atmosphere, a great mood. The sets may be cheap, but they work. The music is awesome. It's incredibly fun. And aside from my long-standing comments on, hey, let's add backstory, it doesn't matter. It's a perfect, fun little horror story, and I have no choice but to give it 10 out of 10 brains on the floor. Whoa. <laughs> Whoa. All right, Julie. All right. I also really enjoyed this. I thought it was a lot of fun. I don't really have a lot of complaints. I never got bored. I loved all the characters. All of the actors were wonderful. I Can I do it? I don't know. Can I do it? I think I might be able to do it. Uh, do it. Do it. <laughs> surprise, everybody. I'm also going to give it 10 out of 10 Sacred oh. Flames. Oh, Duh. my God. Ooh, yeah. Julie's first 10 out of 10. Wow. We've all done it now. First 10 out of 10. Have we had two watchers give 10 to the same before? Yes, yes, Don okay. and I both did its Genesis of the Daleks. Ah, all right, Riley, you gonna make it three? <laughs> oh, oh man, I, I'm debating, I'm debating, <laughs> but let me go and just start off here. 
Hey, it's a knockoff of a Frankenstein movie with lots of ritualistic dancing and chanting, very large, bold sets, an utterly bizarre looking final creature, so you know that I absolutely loved it. The pace moves quickly, the performances by Baker and Sladen are absolutely top class, the additions on top of our Frankenstein story are actually really good additions to it. <sighs> I don't know if I could rate this a 10 because it is just too derivative, but it was so much fun. Oh, I was tempted. I was really, really <laughs> tempted. I oh, don't wuss out. Give it a damn 10. <laughs> no, no, I can't. I'm sorry. I will give it nine and a half Mighty Morbius Decapitation Rangers out of 10. <laughs> Awesome. And I'm kind of finding myself in an interesting place <laughs> on this one because this is not one I really thought about. Oh. As this was not one I really saw in childhood. It was one I got very, very late in my Doctor Who journey. And I always just kind of, it was kind of there. And yet watching it this time, I don't think I'd picked up before on just how fun this was. It's an absolute romp. The characters are wonderful. The sisterhood, I mean, you heard me earlier, I was nerding out over all the esoteric bullshit. And Philip Maddox, fantastic. Morbius is wonderful. The music's good. The direction's good. The sets are cheap, but they do the job. It comes across as theatre on TV, which makes it actually effective. This one's really, really enjoyable. And while I can't quite give it a 10, it's not quite a 10 out of 10 for me. It is a 9.5, and I am going to say 9.5 death by cyanide gas at the hands of the Doctor out of 10, which means the average for this one is (laughs) 9.75, which means based on our totally arbitrary scores, it is the new best story to date. (laughs) It is the best story of Doctor Who ever, apparently. So we shut down the podcast. It's done. We figured it out. (laughs) That's not how it works, and you know it. Yeah, we still have to get to a perfect 10. We might do it. We probably won't, but who knows? I don't know if we can get much closer. We'll see. We'll see. But yeah, this one was good, guys. We all rated it absurdly highly. So listeners, if you haven't watched this one, go and do it now, right now. And with that, we've reached the end of our episode. Next episode, we'll be talking man versus vegetable in the Seeds of Doom. (laughs) But in the meantime, thank you so very much for listening. And as always, have a good one. You have been listening to Watchers in the Fourth Dimension with Don Smith, Riley Shrek, Julie Philippek, and myself, Anthony Williams. This episode, Do Not Steal Employees' Limbs, was recorded on Wednesday the 4th of January 2023. If this is your first time listening into the show, all of our previous episodes are available wherever you like to get your podcasts. You can interact with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at @watchers4d, and you can also email us at watchers4d at gmail.com. If you're enjoying the show, please do subscribe and consider leaving us a review or rating on your favorite podcasting app. All of those things really do help the show. And always remember, much as we've mocked bad bosses in the past, sometimes they can be quite, quite fun.